when we create that world, we don't need a prison system. We don't need a defense system because if we actually were like brave enough to envision a world actually oriented around love for everyone, we don't need those fear-based models. Welcome to Business School for Writers, where we help storytellers like you ditch the starving artist cliche and thrive. I'm your host, Lauren Marie Fleming, and I am obsessed with the power of stories. I've seen the way stories heal writers, readers, and whole communities. But I've also seen the way we silence marginalized voices and discourage people from pursuing a career as a writer, which is why I'm here today helping you to ditch the lies you've been told about whose story matters and instead embrace the truth that the world needs your story now more than ever. I am living proof that it is possible to build a thriving career as a writer, and I created Business School for Writers to show you exactly how you can write more, publish more, and make more money as a storyteller. Welcome to your virtual classroom. Welcome to your cheerleading squad. Welcome to Business School for Writers. Welcome to this week's Business School for Writers podcast. We are talking politics. We are in our politics series and we're talking about this election, this really divisive, really difficult election that's coming up in the United States that affects both the people who live in the United States and people all over the world. That's the you know United States superpower. So we are talking about writing and reading and the spoken word and stories and the way in which they can help heal that divide. They can help us through the difficult and dark times and how they can help us as activists. Today, we are having a very beautiful, very deep, very poignant and special, I'm going to call it special, conversation with Caroline Rothstein, who is a multi-genre, multi-hyphenated performer and poet and writer, and her work has appeared in Cosmopolitan, Marie Claire, BuzzFeed, Nylon, Narratively, The Guardian, and many other places. She's a youth mentor at the Urban World NYC and a facilitator for the Dialogue Arts Project. She tours year-round performing and facilitating workshops at colleges, universities, schools, summer camps, community organizations, and performances venues all around the world and virtually these days and always as well. Caroline and I met years ago via Twitter, and she's one of those people who makes Twitter a bearable place. The words that she shares, the input that she has, the way in which she comes at story, the way in which she comes at activism as a writer, as a performer, as a poet, as an artist, is really a breath of fresh air. It is thoughtful. It is impactful. And it has created this space in Twitter and in the world that I think is powerful and important. And I especially think it's powerful and important right now when we feel so divisive, when we feel so lost, when we don't know what to do with ourselves, both as writers and artists and creatives and as human beings and people on this planet Earth. During our conversation today, we talk on, we go, man, we go deep. We go so deep. And this is one of those conversations that changed me. I just finished it and I'm still reeling from it. But some of the things that I loved she said she wants us to orient our liberation around love. I love that. 
She studied the classics because she said, I'm interested in healing a trauma. If I'm interested in healing a trauma, I need to get to the root of that trauma. She talked about how her adult is constantly trying to heal her inner child, but that our inner child is actually healing her adult creative. And we talked a little bit about that. And we talked a lot about creating this space and permission for art, for creativity, for writing, and what it can do to your mental state if you don't. But the thing we talked the most about is how you can use writing and reading and storytelling to have hard, difficult political conversations right now, hard, difficult racial justice conversations, how you can use it to be a better advocate and a better activist and a better rebel and a better human, how we can use our values and our language, our shared values and language to come together and talk with people about difficult subjects. This is the podcast you need right now for this tumultuous time we're in. So I am just beyond honored to go and talk to Caroline about this and share this interview with you. It is a beautiful interview and I hope that you are as profoundly changed by it as I am. And again, remember, we are a week away from voting in the United States. If you haven't voted yet, please go vote. Voting matters. And I am just sending all of us love through this tumultuous time. And if you are somebody who's struggling right now with everything that's happening, please enjoy this conversation. But also be sure to go to businessschoolforwriters.com slash journaling, where you can download my free guide to journaling during difficult times. It gives you some journaling tips, some prompts, some techniques, and some cheerleading on for you to use this amazing resource that we have called the written word, called writing, pen to paper, typing on your computer, whatever form you journal. This is an amazing support network that you have to write and it's the most important time right now for you to start a journaling practice. So that guide to journaling during difficult times is free and you can grab it at businessschoolforwriters.com slash journaling. Enjoy your journaling and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Caroline. It is so amazing to have you on to see your face. I feel like you are one of those people that I have been Twitter buddies with for almost a decade. But the, the ability to talk face to face, this is a rarity for us. So thank you so much for coming on. I just read your formal intro, but I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of an informal intro on who you are and what you do in this world. Yes. First and foremost, hello. And thank you for having me on as well. It's, I feel, I've always felt so held by you in the Twitter world, which can be such a wild and dangerous place. So I am so grateful to have this opportunity to connect in this way and share it with others. So who I am and what I do I'm an artist, I'm a writer and performer. And I kind of feel like it's like a, it's like one of those PTA phone trees, you know, it like, or like a family reunion, family tree. Like it like starts with artist and then it's like performer, writer, spoken word poet, journalist, nonfiction writer, theater background, playwright, like educator, workshop facilitator. Like it's all, there's so many different descriptors I could use to say who I am and what I do. And my content covers a wide range of topics and themes as well. But I feel like 
the older I get and the further I get into my career, the more I return back to like being a small child who was an artist dabbling in all the things. And like, I still remain an artist dabbling in all the things. And I still have my like formal bio that streamlines it for everyone else. But I feel like for me, I've always felt really 50-50 writer performer. And if I'm too much on the page, I need to be on stage. And if I'm too much on stage, I need to be on the page. And then it's all constantly in conversation with one another. How did that childhood, what was Caroline Kid like? like what were you <laughs> like as that little young artist? I'm really feeling her a lot today because there was a long therapy, not the therapy session was the usual amount of time, but like I talked a lot about my child self today and young Caroline, the artist was very, gosh, what's the word? Fascinated by what it meant to tell a story, right? And to both embody and inhabit a story and consume a story. So it was like this constant cycle of receiving stories through musical theater or movies or TV shows or whatever it was, music, and then creating and generating those stories as well. Whether I was like moving the living room furniture out of the way and uh, choreographing dances to Janet Jackson on the living room floor where I like, you know, I'm like 10 years old, like undulating my body upwards to like Janet Jackson or am I like or I'm like in my bedroom with my little ponies and Barbies like creating vast intricate like soap operas or like writing poetry or taking construction paper and folding it into autobiographical memoir at five like it was all, you know, in collage work, like collage was a huge part of my visual, you know, whether that was like the way I created photo collages on my bedroom wall, which were part of my expression, or like creating, you know, collaged clipboards that I still to this day use. Like for me, or if it was about how I dressed to go to school, like one day would be like sporty vibes, the next day would be like, <laughs> snowboarder vibes and I, I was a snoboarder so this wasn't like too out of the park but like, wait, what, is, what are snoboarder vibes you know like I literally <laughs> snowboarding pants like yeah I literally I literally wore my snowboarding pants to school sometimes with like a winter hat and my goggles upside down and backwards and like long braids and like you know like a tight turtleneck or something okay you know and like it just I don't know, like, I know I've gone the gamut from, like, you know, five-year-old Caroline to 15-year-old Caroline, but I think my, like, this ability to access that creative impulse and, and, you know, like, I don't know, it's just the consuming and the generating, like, that's what I can picture, right? Like, and, and music is a huge part of it too, all kinds of genres and also collaborations, right? Like, choreographing dances with friends for fun, choreographing dances with friends for performances at school. Like it's, it's been in my blood my whole life and I never wanted to be anything other than a writer and a performer, which hasn't made it an, any easier journey per se, 
But anytime it gets really hard, I remind myself that I've been doing this the whole time and there's literally nothing else I could do without like starving or depleting my soul, if that makes sense. Yeah. As a writer, it does. I, get it. <laughs> I totally get it. My biggest question though is how, I don't, I don't know how to put this without it seeing kind of offensive to artists, but like, how is that not murdered? Like how was, how, I don't, I know so few people, myself included, that didn't have that young artistic version of them murdered by the idea of like growing up and maturing. Wow. So do you, can, do you know, was it, yes. was it? And you found, and you like brought like mine was, and I brought it back to life. Like, you know, how that, how you were able to keep that into adulthood or recreate it in adulthood. Yeah. I often say that the biggest privileges in my entire life, despite many social identities I carry that like are heavy privilegey, whatever, I don't know how else to say it. I think the two biggest privileges in my life are one that my parents have always emotionally and spiritually supported my being an artist. And two, the, my community, my family of choice and my family of kin, like that's it. Like, yes, I have a lot of other privilege and I grew up with a lot of privilege, but that in and of itself is the biggest of all in, I think, because exactly what you just said, it's like, un, it's very rare that now this isn't to say that like my father doesn't still send me emails about finding a full-time nine to five job, right? Like, or am I sure I don't want to go to law school, right? Like it's not to say those moments don't still happen, but my my mother especially was really incredible at for my siblings and I saying, okay, this is what you are finding joy with. Let's go all in. Right. And, and my father, similarly, especially with my activism, it was like, okay, you care about changing the world. Here's your graduation gift, a legal pad to write down the notes of like how you want to change the world. And that seems so simple and little, but like that moment I can picture at graduation with my father handing me this legal pad that said for Caroline love dad, you want to change the world. Here's your place to plot it out and think about it. Like that's like really an incredible, yeah. right. And, and again, it wasn't perfect. Like there were plenty of moments of challenge, but I, I have to give my parents that, that they early on. And I, and if I think about it energetically, it was like my mom really holding space for the artist and my father really holding space for the activist and letting those two be in conversation and tandem with one another from such an early age meant that the only person getting in my way of being an artist was myself. And that could be the hardest person. Sometimes. Right. And I, <laughs> I do, I get in, in my own way constantly. Uh, <laughs> Which, which is only like a better evidence of like how hard we can be on ourselves, even when the rest of the green lights are there to go, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I love that. And I love that. I think that so many people wish that they were handed money, right? They wish that they were handed like an endowment and don't get me wrong. Money is so important for artists. Sure. We don't give artists enough money. That is one of the tenets of like what I do is helping artists find more money but the support the financial support only comes after you give yourself permission to be an artist so the yes. permission to be an activist the permission to like yes. write your words down that is huge and that's amazing beautiful I want to give everybody a like <laughs> pad that I just, I might steal that for, 
for my, Please do. for people in my life. I think that that's a really great transition, the, this idea of activism and writing and that combo into what I want to talk with you specifically about today. And this podcast episode, um, or if you're watching a YouTube video, is going to air on the week before this huge election in the United States. <sighs> No pressure. No pressure. No pressure, right? <laughs> um, just going to delve into it right now and just be like, how, what, why? So one of the things that I think that you are, I have projected onto you is that you are really great at bridging, using language to bridge that, the gap that happens a lot around politics. Mm. And I'm specifically thinking, I loved this Alma piece that you wrote, wrote about talking to your Jewish family about Black Lives Matters. I might be messing up with that title, but it was something around that yeah. title. And, and I love your tweets. Your tweets are always great. They're political, but they're also accessible. And I just thought that we could delve in, maybe not even in a formal way. Like you don't have yeah. to give us 10 tips for how yeah, yeah. to use writing, <laughs> you know, that could be another episode. But um, I would just love to to start a dialogue with you about what it means to have this political divide and this political situation that seems dire to a lot of people on both sides Mm -hmm. and how writing and performing and the words and stories has helped you in that. So big giant topic. (sighs) I'll take a deep breath. Yeah. And maybe a good insertion point would be how do you talk to your family about these issues we'll start there and then we can talk about more generally like the world and the twitter (laughs) great great love it thank you for reading that piece i co-wrote it with my younger sister who's a therapist and how do you know for me my family is multiple parts my family of kin my family of origin is my immediate family, which in body is my mom, my dad, and my sister. We had a brother who died 18 years ago yesterday from when we're, mm-hmm. when we're currently recording this. And so there's first my immediate family, and then there's my extended family on, on each side, my maternal side and my paternal side. And then there's the extensions of that, right? Like their extended families and their relatives. And so for me, talking to my family is different based on who, what like electron layer we're in, if you will. And so I'll say that I happen to have an immediate family where our politics are fairly aligned. And if there's ever any tension, it tends to be intergenerational around language or around the way we frame issues, right? So the way that my parents frame anti-racist issues as people born in the early 50s that are white and Jewish, like, is different language than my sister and I use, even if we have the same politics around racial justice and anti-racism, or same with trans rights and queer rights, right? Like, my mother and father have always been in support of LGBTQIA plus rights. And that is actually where I developed my queer lens politically was by my parents normalizing queerness for me over conversations at a young age. And 
they still have different language around their entryway into their care and commitment to those issues because of generational divides, right? And so, you know, my mother understands pronouns and the importance of them and still we work on it, right? Like to like, but she gets it, you know what I'm saying? Same with my father, but it's that they grew up in a time where that was not centered as part of a conversation to understand why to break the gender binary. But like my parents have not, in my experience, pressured my sister and I to default to any kind of gender binary in a way that is oppressive because like, do you know what I'm saying? Like we're sharing these values, but, but then there are moments when I feel like I have to be like, how are you literally the same parents that gave me the progressive values I have? But like you're, and then I have to remind myself that like language has changed and the way we center the conversation has changed. You know, that I can picture a Passover where I was literally saying to my dad, like in front of a whole table of other people, like, dad, like, how can you say that? You are the reason I am engaged in the activism I'm engaged in. And what you said is super problematic. I don't understand how you're the same person that taught me to be anti-racist. And you just said what you said. And then like, I remember someone across the table being like, good for you for calling your father out. And I was like, yeah, dad, I don't get. So that's the first step, right? Is like holding space for the reality of the intergenerational language challenges that we face and being patient and and welcoming my family into the values that we share and then finding ways to align the language and that's i think also my experience with my extended family and relatives as well like hello we share these values hello we agree on the core issue at hand I'm noticing that language you use would imply different. How do we play with our language to make sure that we are highlighting our shared values? So I think that's like, you know, that was definitely the approach my sister and I took in writing that article. And I think that's the approach I take with my family at large. You know, like we, like I happen to have a family that like I am pretty sure is going to all vote the same way in the presidential election, you know, in, in all extended ways. And like we talk about the issues differently, right? Which is the ongoing reminder for me that, again, it's like that value alignment, even if the language is different. I love that what you just said, welcoming them into the language and values we share. I, yeah. I immediately was like, whoa, open. <laughs> because my parents are very, very devout Republican, never going to vote Democrats. The Democrats are the worst. The Democrats have hurt us in X, Y, and Z ways. They're farmers and they, they see that the, they, they like have this perception. And I often find that the way that they vote is different than the values that they taught me, the values that I know they have and the values that I want them to have. And when we, my mom and I get heated, we're very much like each other. So we get heated. But when my dad and I sit down, he is voting for Trump for very similar reasons, I am voting for not Trump. Right, right. <laughs> and, it's, and it's his value system is same as mine, but he approaches it in a different way with different language. And I hadn't really thought about really anchoring to that shared value system before this call. Like how can we 
really anchor, like how can I come into it from shared language and shared values? And for him, like I remember when Trump was elected, my sister and I had a really hard time facing that my parents had supported this man. And we cried. My mom wouldn't talk to us for a long time because she thought we were being sore losers. That was a different story. But my dad and I, we sat down and I cried to him. I cried. I was like, listen, dad, I feel like you continue to vote for people who are taking your queer daughter's rights away from her. Yeah. And that hurts me. That that hurts me in so many ways. And he, his response is, I am protecting you by giving a strong economy, by having a strong defense. Your rights don't, it doesn't matter if you have no rights, if our country is falling apart, if we're being invaded, if we don't have a strong economy. That is how I protect you as a queer person. And I'm over here being like, I want the legal rights. And he's like, so we we are both able for the same thing. And I think it's often, it's easy for him to say, I just want to not work. For, like it's, it would be easy for him to say like, I'm a liberal who just wants everything handed to her, who doesn't want to have to work for anything in her life. Like that's that narrative that comes sure. with liberals. And it's easy for me to be like, he doesn't care about rights of anybody but himself. That's yes. conservative. But how do we, how do we actually find that point at which we are sharing that value and language? You were yes. Talking? Yes. Mind blown. I love that. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. And, and, you know, I know that um, most folks will be tuning in via the podcast. So for those that can't see um, on the video, what you just did, as you used your hands to say, I'm over here, my dad's over here. It was so visceral to me. Like I physically saw, I saw the divide, which is that the defense-like approach is a fear-based and the rights approach is loved-based. And, I, and like, I know that's an old cliche of like, it's either we're orienting around love and liberation for all, or we're orienting around fear and just like one person for themselves. But like, that's to me what it is. And if the, and if the value in the end is for everyone to be protected, it's about like getting folks on board with the love approach because when you when we orient our liberation around love that's when we start to actually orient around the most marginalized folk so that then we are actually actually protecting queer people and trans people and black people right like and indigenous people and when we go from the fear based we're rooted in white supremacy and systemic oppression because those systems were created to indoctrinate fear. And, it's, and it boggles my mind when oftentimes I, I witness people that I know and people that I don't know, whether it's on social media or elsewhere, orient their reasoning for supporting someone like Trump in that like protection, fear-oriented model and then like claim a like love for humanity. And it's like, no, that's actually the opposite. Like actually at the core of some of the religions that we like claim are driving our choices politically is actually love, actually. And what that actually looks like is rights for everyone and is access. And then like when we create that world, 
we don't need a prison system. We don't need a defense system because if we actually were like brave enough to envision a world actually oriented around love for everyone, we don't need those fear-based models. Like we're going to have fear because we're human and that seems to be a feeling we can't get rid of and like our technology can't like get rid of that but like our management of that fear could be way healthier you know I love that orient our liberation around love great it's a great quote it's probably going to be on the Instagram you guys check out business school for writers Instagram because it's definitely going to be a quote we pull out Uh, I also love that you brought up that fear because I think that I'm a really big fan of Elizabeth Gilbert and the way that she talks about fear is like, it's always coming along for the ride. And it's, you're on this, you're on this. If you haven't read Big Magic yet, 100% if you're creative or not, go read Big Magic and you'll, after that, you'll call yourself a creative. But she talks about you're on a road trip of life and fear is allowed to come along because fear is going to keep you from like driving on the wrong side of the freeway and ending up in an accident. But it has to be in the back. It can't decide where you're going and it doesn't even get to play what's on the, like pick what's on the radio. And I love that idea. Like fear is coming along versus I feel like on both sides, we have fear driving right? We have, and and that is valid fear for a lot of people. It is real and valid and visceral. Like people's lives are on the line in so many ways. People's livelihoods are on the line and that feels like their lives on both sides. You know, my dad feels like his life is on the line because his livelihood is on the line. And, and, but we're letting fear drive. So I love this idea of like, what if love drove and if love drove, how would I talk to my parents differently even though we have completely like some of the right. things that they believe in, I have moral issues with and some yes. of the things I believe in, they have moral issues with. Yes. But if we, but we approach our conversations at fear-based, like so afraid or like trying to convince them of something versus coming at them with, again, that language and values we share and that love. So I feel like we're actually giving really good tips here. Like I'm really excited Yay. for all our <laughs> listeners. I hope awesome. <laughs> I, I'm having, I'm, I'm learning a lot. So okay. that's all that matters. So am I, I mean, the opportunity to even just like talk things out. I'm also like, oh, okay. Yeah. That, that sounds usable for me too. If it's coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I love that. Sometimes I'll write something and I'll be like, whoa, that, who was that person yeah, yeah. that just gave me that download of knowledge? Cause that wasn't me. I feel like my book, which is right behind me for those watching the video, Body Love was definitely written from a place that was wiser than me. And it was, I finally understood how there were muses and I understood people who like talk to God when they're writing. And I understood people who feel like they tap into like a deeper wisdom or the universe's wisdom, because there's wisdom in that book that I'm like, that wasn't me. That's not my wisdom. It's a better <laughs> version of me's wisdom, if anything, like it's subconscious wisdom. So I feel like we're bringing out some of that, that like little extra inspired wisdom. here. Today. Love it. Let's talk about the ways in which you your activism works through the written word. So I, I know you most through Twitter now, but I first found you through, I don't even remember what it was. I just remember you sitting in a chair, I think. And it's just like almost a white, there's this beautiful performance piece about your body. And I was writing body love and I was doing my body image work and, and there's just this gorgeous piece. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is it my video, my black and white video of my poem, Fat? 
I think so. I think or so. Or is it the fat is not a feeling video I made with BuzzFeed? Okay, it would Am have I been. Am a unitard? <laughs> <laughs> that should be a question for everything. Excuse me. Wait, am I, was I, I in a unitard? Because <laughs> if I'm in a unitard, then it was this one. But if I'm not, it's in this one. Uh, it would have been around 2015. Great. So probably my, the fat is not a feeling video I made with Buzzfeed. Are there like collage things and yes. handwriting? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's it. That, see the collage, the collage. <laughs> collage has um, come back. I love that. Literally, literally Buzzfeed like scanned my old collages from high school and like turned my handwriting into a font. And like that became the animation of the video. <sighs> that's so yes, I remember that's that. it. And I yeah. love that that comes back to that collages from high school. Right. Like, I know. You were able I know. to bring... So we connected over that. We connected yes. over, it was, it was like a couple of years after my brother had died and you sent me beautiful yeah. stuff around that. Yeah. We connected over the, like, yes. and our brothers died around the same time um, of year. So like every year it's kind of this like, Hey, send me a love, send me a love. So I would just love to know, tell me about how words and activism go together for you and the power that that gives you within yourself and within the world. Whew. I just want to start, like, I just need to take a moment to say thank you and just like continually awed by some of our shared experiences and just like the internet can be both devastating and also triumphant. And like, to me, our connection is like a obvious example of the latter and you have been such a source for me in the moments when it's been the former. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think for me, I often tell this story of being in elementary school. I must have been seven or eight years old. And I'm in my childhood bedroom in a floor length pink tutu with a Sony tape recorder. And I have written a song about world peace. And I am alone in my bedroom recording my world peace song into the Sony tape recorder. And I like tell this story all the time because it's like, here I am writing, you know, songs as a small child and it's about world peace. Like, so I think for me and going back to the stories I told about my parents, both emotionally and spiritually supporting these sides of myself as an artist, as an activist, you know, like when I was seven years old, the week my sister was born, my father took me to see a screening of a documentary called Berkeley in the 60s. This was November 1990. And it's about the history of the free speech movement and the Black Panther movement and the civil rights movement. And like that was in me at such a young age, like to me, patriotism meant protesting, right? And so like my understanding of what it meant to speak out and speak truth to power was rooted in this particular historical moment in the United States history. And then through educating myself both in school and where it lacked mostly out of school, like I was able to start to fill in that historical understanding. And I was a classical studies major in college because I wanted, yes, I, I loved Latin as a linguist and as a writer, and more importantly, as an activist, 
or someone interested in activism, because sometimes I struggle with calling myself an activist. It's like the community should tell me whether or not I'm one. So like for lack of, you know, just to shorten it as an act, right, as an activist, I understood that if I was interested in dis helping to dismantle systemic oppression, then I wanted to understand the origins of systemic oppression in Western civilization. And to me, that meant ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And so that was part of, that was a large part of why I majored in classical studies. And so what does this have to do with being an artist? This, this means that for me, I think for those of us that go to college and university or engage in education of any kind, whether that is self-taught or through institutional spaces of education. I often say that what we quote major in, whether that is formal or not, is how our brain thinks. And my brain thinks about going to the root of the issue. And if I'm interested in something changing, I want to understand how it started. So if I'm interested in healing from a trauma, I want to understand its origin, right? And so much of my art and writing as a performer, as a writer, whether it's my poetry or prose or whatever it is, is about that exploration of getting to the root to do the healing for later. Whether that is, okay, I'm interested in white Jews, like not being racist, great. So like, here's an article that can help with that, right? Or I'm interested in eradicating eating disorders because they're preventable, great. Let me write this poem about my experience. Or I'm interested in ending sexual violence, great. Let me write this thing or perform this poem that is about the like, my journey as a survivor of multiple accounts of sexual assault. So I think it was the, the activist brain and the artist brain have always been in conversation with one another. And I have continually going back to that, what we talked about earlier with generating and consuming as a child, I think college was my main learning grounds for the generating and consumption of activism. So like, I remember reading E.L. Doctorow in an English class and learning, oh, I've been screaming and yelling and swearing constantly in my poems to end the Iraq war and to call, you know, and tell George Bush, who's never going to hear me say it, that he's a Nazi, right? And like yell about fascism. Remember, this is early 2000s. So like, hello, like, fascism in the United States isn't new, but I stand by calling George Bush a Nazi and a fascist. But like I was reading E.L. Doctorow and realized he had the same, again, values and language. He had the same politics and values I did, but the way he was approaching it through his fiction and his language was so more, like so different than my approach. And it, and it softened me. And it invited me to think more critically about how to use my art to invite people into a conversation. And so, so again, like it was like I was out there protesting the war. I was out there protesting racism on campus. And I was like creating art that was more critically engaging with how to be as effective as possible in being as accessible as possible. And I, I fail plenty and I am still on that exploration. I have not figured anything out per se, but I think it's that for me, it's like the art and the activism are so intertwined. There's no way to separate them because 
like the way to prevent the preventable is by helping people heal. And so if like art can be a language for healing and empowerment and permission giving, then hopefully that can give people permission to love themselves and then they won't want to, you know, be racist. I was going to use other language, but I didn't know it was acceptable on the podcast. I mean, we use all languages on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, You said a couple really great things that I loved in there. Um, One, you talked about the classics and learning from, I love that you're like, if, if I'm interested in healing a trauma, I need to get to the root of that trauma. I love that. I love that, especially because the episode that's going to air before your episode, we're going to talk about the hero's journey and the being in Wow. Yeah. And, and I feel like we're in the dark night of the soul right now. And so it talks about the way in which heroes have gotten out of that and how using story and classic story can help us with that. So if you're listening, when you're done with this one, go back and read or watch that one, because it's, it's a powerful, powerful one. And so I love the idea of learning the classics because so much of what we are now was formed by that. Yes. So I love that you talked about that. And I loved that you talked about art and activism being so intertwined. And it made me ask a question of myself, and I don't know the answer to this. So I'm going to ask you, can you, are you automatically an activist if you're an artist? We live in a capitalistic world that, <laughs> that like really doesn't like you being an artist or if you're going to be an artist it needs to be like a very very capitalistic version by calling yourself an artist and being yourself an artist are you is that automatically activism I don't know the answer I know and I've like I've literally been on panels before with artist friends who would say no so that I was holding the yes camp and we've like debated this before I'll say this I think that everyone gets to call themselves whatever they want to call themselves. So if an artist does not feel like an activist, inherently amazing, great. And I would also say that exactly what you just said, I'm going to answer your question with a question. Is it possible, reiterating what you just said, is it possible to be an artist in a capitalist society where being an artist is seemingly inherently political? Similar to being in a body is inherently political in a world that wants us dead right Mm -hmm. so like so to me it's like i don't know that it's possible to separate the two it doesn't mean that like every artist is an activist but it might mean that all art is inherently activism right like i don't know the answer but it's like my our bodies are political because the country told us they are yeah like i exist in a fat queer body fat queer femme body that is political not wanting to diet loving myself as that is so political like being open openly fat talking about my fatness openly without shame talking about my queerness openly without shame talking about my vagina openly without shame talking like wearing lipstick and being femme openly without shame and that's so political so as I find as I go deeper in, like I have this program, write your friggin' book already. It launches once a year. And, and I do these interviews with people about their books and every one of them, everyone has like, I can't call myself. I'm not really a writer. I'm not really an artist. I'm not really like, I don't, or they have these moments they share with me where they were like, I think I'm a writer. And someone in their life was like, "Mm, no, you don't get to be that. You don't get to be that. That's. And so I wonder if it's not that I love your distinction of all, all like art is, becomes activism in this world. So I I wonder if simply saying you are an artist is an act of rebellion in and of itself. So I wonder if it's less activism, more of a rebel, and we couldn't combine the two. 
I don't know the answer. I love that. And I also feel like it's rebellious and maybe it's also a political act because of the world we live in, right? And maybe there's a world one day where being an artist isn't political, but like I imagine to get to that world, being an artist will be political. Will have to be political. Often, often. Uh, often. I think that also leads to the final thing I wanted to talk to you about is this idea of like the psychology of being a writer, right? So you're, you said it really great. You, you, you were talking about like, you feel humbled, you feel lost, you feel driven, you have certainty, you have doubt, you feel like you're an expert and a professional, and you also feel like you're a total amateur. Yeah. I just want to know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, what is that roller coaster? I think that I find at least that people who come to me who are very new on this journey will approach me and be like, okay, you finally like feel good about being a writer. You love your writing. You have this process down. You can write a book. You're great. But that's never, I've never met, I have met writers who are like New York Times bestsellers and Pulitzer Prize winners and like award winners who still, I mean, I was just reading a New Yorker article on Jennifer Egan and she's like, this is the worst book ever. I know it just won a Pulitzer. Like she went from worst wow. book ever. She's like, no, legitimately a horrible book that I wrote to now it went, I think she won a Pulitzer with it. I'm not hundred percent sure which prize, but it was like big prizes were wow. one with Manhattan beach. So I wanted to really get your take on what it means to like go through that roller coaster of being a writer. I could like, literally start hysterically crying or go into fetal position. It's like so real. So I'm just like sitting here, like holding with my hands on my thighs to ground myself and also feeling so held by your like mentioning Jennifer Egan and like me, like seeing you across the screen and like knowing I've felt so held by you many times before. I don't know what else to say other than just like, sometimes it's impossible. And <laughs> And I, and I want to give up all the time. And then the child inside me that knows there's nothing else I could do pushes me and holds my hand. And like, that's so wild to think that like, you know, I mentioned like a heavy therapy session earlier. And like in many ways, the 37 year old me is currently in the process of helping hold the like four year old, seven year old and eight year old me's hand through some like major healing stuff right now. But honestly, it's the seven year old, four year old, eight year old me who holds 37 year old me's hand when I want to give up being an artist, which is so, I don't know that I've ever realized that until now. So now I'm like, whoa, do I actually believe that? But like my body feels it. So I'm going to trust that I do. But like, that's wild to me. And, and I, you know, going back to privilege, like when this pandemic started, I was a couple weeks into you know, every, I don't know, year, month, week, day, I have an existential crisis as an artist. I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Who am I to do this? Nobody cares what I have to say. Why am I like, I should give up. No one's ever going to care what I've said. Like everyone's lying. No, it, this is so dumb. And I was like in that when the pandemic started. And then I was really like, seriously, who am I? White, cis, straight, like woman, able-bodied woman, like who am I to like be an artist right now? Why? Like what is art gonna do? Like, and what am I gonna do? Nobody needs my voice right now. Like what am I, why am I here? And then it, it was just like, and I go through this often 
but like it felt so it felt really hard in that moment because at that moment my work didn't feel essential when where i live in brooklyn was quickly becoming an epicenter for this thing and my mental health like did waver and like that's a whole other story in and of itself but like it is impossible all the time for me to be an artist and a writer and there's literally nothing else i can do because anytime i try to do anything else or i even think about doing anything else it's actually more impossible it hurts 50 million times more than like the impossibleness of being an artist in the moments of doubt. Like the worst moments of like doubt as an artist, which is part of, I think, the job description, it seems, are way less painful than the moments that my art is not at the forefront of my life and my day. Those moments are far more excruciating. And I have to just then go into the deepest wells of self-love I have ever cultivated and go into like the generator of the generator of the generator reserves to like get myself back to trusting that this is who I am and what I need to do and and also continue to check my privilege and also continue to hold myself accountable for the ways where I do make things worse and to like make space for other people and also know that i have to have i get to not have to have space i don't have to have space but that i get to have space too and that to me is like you know i'm like a very spiritual person i believe in reincarnation so to me it's like listen what a great puzzle i chose for my soul to like be in this body that is navigating all these other things while also being while also having this like sole purpose to do this thing. So like, what a good puzzle to have to continually, you know, what a great game of Tetris to like both make sure I tell myself I am worthy of, of taking up space and continue to hold myself accountable for not taking up too much space. And that's like a great problem to have. And it's, a, and it's also a real challenge to like, you know, like if I throw my voice away because I'm like, I, you know, like I don't get to speak because of these privileges I hold, like what good is that doing for my voice? Because then I'm like silencing myself and like I've been through enough trauma that I don't need to do that. And then I'm also like, that's not serving the universe either. If like I continue to have messages inside myself and outside myself that tell me this is who I am and what my job is and what I'm here to do and what I am allowed to do, then, then I just got to like keep pushing. And that's, it's like, yeah, I'd rather that impossibleness, impossibility or whatever word there is, all the cognates of impossible. Writers are, it's hard to be a writer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> to say the right word. I'd, I'd rather all that impossiblenessness, whateverness, than how painful it has been, like literally mental health dangerous when I step away from my art. And that to me is enough of a case study to know that like, okay, then this is what I have to do and I have to push through. I don't remember what episode I talked about this in. It was one of the earlier episodes. I talked about how I have seen 
myself and my friends get literally suicidal when they're not yes. creating art, when they're letting other things literally way between their art. Literally, I rem- I I ha- got to a point. I, my mental health has been very great the past six years. I'm very lucky to be in a space where it's been great. But before then, it was like every other year I had some really bad times. And every time I hit the rock bottom, friends would ask me, hey, what last time you wrote? <laughs> Even now when I'm having really rough days and I'm hard, they're like, mm, when was the last time you like journaled, Lauren? Have you worked? Are you working on a novel right now? Like just these friendly reminders that, oh, this thing needs to have space in my life in the same way I need to like move my body in some way every day mm-hmm. or I will be in physical pain and I can't eat gluten because I'll be in physical pain. I can't yes. go long without sitting with a pen and paper or working on my computer on something longer, not just a text, not just a tweet, not just a it's social, like something for just me that people may yes. never even see. Um, so I love that you brought that up because I think that so often, at least my experience and the experience of the people who come to me and I will coach them and work with them is that they think that telling their story or making space for writing is um, seems like almost like childish or yeah. almost like, superfluous selfish or like the thing that you do if you're rich and have all this time like it's it's like it to me it feels so indulgent it is literally my career on the line and I still feel like I am indulging if I sit if I sit I just took a week off to write and I set my whole business up to take these five weeks a year to just go in the middle of nowhere and write And that feels like I just set myself up to sit down for a week and eat dairy ice cream and I can't eat dairy or gluten. So like (laughs) glutinous, like chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream Uh, for a week. It feels that totally long, but it's the only thing that feels right. Right. And it's, I'm so grateful we're talking about this and so grateful to you for sharing what you're sharing. I mean, I, I, I relate so much. It's, and I think that goes back to like why writing is then a political act, right? The same way that like body love is a political act in a, in a body shaming world, right? And it's, I mean, similarly for me, like my, one of my worst bouts of suicidal ideation in adulthood was, was when I was helping to manage a Kickstarter campaign for a documentary I'm a producer on because I was spending 16, 18 hours a day focused on the Kickstarter for this project. And my entire own art was like back channel. And by the end of the month, I was in a very dangerous place. Same with like at the beginning of the pandemic, like I hadn't even made that connection until now. I was like, oh, there were all these other things that led me to be in a dangerous mental health place. But like, oh, duh. Because I like questioned my entire existence as an artist. How'd I bury that lead in therapy? You know, like that's like, duh. <laughs> I think I, I just, gosh, how incredible would it be if we didn't have to feel indulgent for doing our job? And, and it's, it's amazing how many false narratives, speaking of writing, like this world has told us and co-created to create a world that is oriented around fear. And we are literally in the cataclysmic moment. I know this is airing the week between the, before the election. Like this is the literal cataclysmic moment that sages and elders and ancestors have been talking about for thousands of years of like, 
it's not which side are you on red blue democrat republican it's like literally which side are you on are you orienting for love or are you orienting for fear are you working to build a world where writers do their job because that is their job or because we are told to feel we're being indulgent and selfish for doing our job right like are you living in a world where like you actually want to be a banker because it brings you joy and love, which I'm all for, or are you a banker because someone shamed you into not becoming a teacher? See, you know, like, yes, I pay enough for right. Like, and yes, I'm literally thinking about actual people I know in my life who like became bankers or lawyers because, but secretly told me that they wanted to be teachers or in the Peace Corps. And like, I know what happened to their careers. Like we could have all predicted it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, but then there are bankers I know who love being bankers and lawyers I know who love being lawyers. Great. But like, that's, I think most writers, we are told we don't get to love it. And so on top of the other challenges of the job on its own, then there's this like, I don't know. It's refreshing to know that I'm not alone in the existential whirlwind abyss. Mm -hmm. And it's also like, gosh, what a bummer. I think a lot. So I, I say that I started business school for writers because for a couple of reasons, one, I'm tired of seeing people not be able to afford to be writers. Yeah. I want writers to think of themselves as creative entrepreneurs, to think of it as a business and to think of it with that like left brain mind that I really needed when I started and didn't have. And two, I don't want another person drinking themselves to death or putting their head in the oven because they think that that's what it means to be a writer. Like I want us one, to be able to afford mental health, like, and two, to stop having this concept. So I, I thought for a really long time that I couldn't be a writer because my life was too good, that I didn't, that I had too much privilege, that I didn't have enough there wasn't enough like trauma. So I created drama so I could write about drama. And then my brother died and I was like, oh yeah, can I go, can I take that back? Can I like go back to when I didn't have these horrible things to write about? Cause it was actually easier then. It was better then. And I think that we think of writing as this thing that you have to do only from the dark. And I want to show people how writing can help you through the dark, but you also, the light, like I am, a huge fan when people during the Black Lives Matters, when people were sharing all of these texts that all their white friends should read that yeah. were really heavy and really deep. I'm like, cool. Have you read Jasmine Guillory's romance series Woo! proposal? Like our, and, and Jasmine every single Guillory's, one of them. <laughs> I, the new one was back ordered. I need to get it. Oh my it. God. It's so I'm good. Like, I'm Jasmine. <laughs> if you haven't read all the Jasmine Guillory, like I'm just going to, for those watching, like up there is my Jasmine Guillory. Uh, yes. <laughs> And, um, and and Talia Hibbert. Oh my God. Talia oh yes. Talia Hibbert, the Chloe Brown series. Like, yes. So yes. Um, Talia Hibbert and just came out with a mystery novel too. So good. Those are goals. I'm going to have them on the podcast at some point in the future. Cross <laughs> my fingers. But I think that Jasmine Guillory wrote a really beautiful piece in time. If you haven't read it yet, I highly suggest people listening to go read it on, on, you need to be reading Black Joy too. Yes. And yes. I think that we think that that text that can change your life, that that activism is a writer, right? That we come back to that, that calling yourself an artist means that you create these texts that are profound when sometimes it doesn't have to matter at all. It can just be escapism. It can just be fun. It can just be joy because there's a, there's a rebellion in joy as well. Like I love romance novels because I think that there's something beautiful in knowing that there's going to be a happy ending. 
Oh, I've read over 40 since the pandemic started. Yes, I'm going to need to talk to you about all your options. <laughs> I just got a Ripped Bodice. The Ripped Bodice is a um, romance bookstore in Culver City that does a lot of activism around diversity oh. romance. And <gasps> the way, yeah, they're amazing. If you don't know oh them, go check them out. Ripped Bodice. And I just got the, and like, Diversity in romance, they do a, um, a full industry-wide survey every year of the diversity in romance that exists and doesn't exist. And then they also advocate for the way in which we look down on romance and how we need wow. happy ever after. And also the way in which we see romance as this like womanly thing over here. Right. And it's like right. porn and it's bad and it's this thing over here that's bad and looked down upon. Yet it is, the average reader reads two books a year. The average romance reader reads 120. <gasps> I know, I know. So the things that we look down upon, even in art worlds, like you don't have to be Jennifer Egan winning that Pulitzer. Oh my God. Jasmine Guillory winning the book awards too and writing about joy and accessible topics in beautiful ways. And that can be joy as activism, joy as artists, like getting to create art from joy, not from pain, not because you cut off your ear, not because you put your head in the oven. Art from joy. That's what I want to get to. I want my friends to stop. I don't want us to have to write it from, I remember when Trump was elected, Amanda Palmer wrote a very controversial piece about how there's going to be beautiful art that came out of this. And sure, there has been beautiful art that has come out of this and beautiful activism. But I want to be creating art. I want art to get me through the hard times, but I want us to be creating art from joy. Uh, <laughs> you like I I like was getting teary-eyed because I just I I feel I like can't thank you enough for everything you just said like I need to hear everything you just said for some projects I'm currently working on and in my own current moment of existential like <laughs> depths of dread like I said it can happen every month every day every so I just I'm so grateful to you for saying everything you just said. And I'm thinking of Adrian Marine Brown's Pleasure Activism, and which is an amazing book, and and how much it's rooted in Audre Lorde and Octavia Butler and all like I just love your bringing Jasmine Gullery into the conversation and this notion of black joy being critical to the way we are thinking about anti-racism work and black liberation as well and 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 so i'm just i'm really moved by everything you just said thank you you must do this professionally (laughs) well i i am very moved by everything that you said as well and i feel like that's a really good like us being (sighs) place to end the interview Oh my gosh, you guys, if you get a chance to see Caroline live, go do it. So how can we see you live? How can we listen to you, read you? What, how, what's yeah. the best way for us to continue com- conversing with you? Thank you. My website, carolinerothstein.com, and I'm on all the social medias. So uh, that's a great way to stay in touch, stay connected, uh, see my newest work. My website is a good place for a rabbit hole of previously published writing and uploaded live video performances and non-live video performances. And then in terms of live shows, I'm doing virtual bookings. And I know there are some performers I know that are doing very, very safe social distance type stuff. So I'm available for those things too. But my website and my social media, I'm Caroline Rothstein everywhere, uh, is a 
quick and easy way to start connecting. So I'd be honored to connect with any and all of you. Nice. Well, I am not following you on Instagram yet. I didn't know that you were on Instagram. <laughs> I like devour your tweets, but I'm excited to go follow you there as well. Likewise. Thank you again for such a beautiful conversation. And I think that this is, I'm definitely going to go listen to it multiple times during this election season. And I think that it's just Thanks. a nice balm and breath of fresh air during this, this kind of tumultuous dark night of the soul that we're all going in through right now. Thank you, Lauren, so much for having me. And again and again, just I, dark night of the soul, like I have, as you know, had many a dark night, especially on the internet. And I just, you you have always been a balm and i appreciate you for actually like practicing what you preach and and being such an amazing support so it's an honor and privilege to have gotten to share time with you thank you thank you for that and ditto you're definitely one of the only people i still pay attention to on twitter <laughs> so thank you for doing that <laughs> <laughs> on that note thank you again and i will talk with you hopefully again soon we'll have you on we have so many more topics we can talk about so thank thanks you again so have a great day bye thanks bye. this week's book recommendation is every book that jasmine guillory has written and i hope i'm saying her name right but jasmine Guillory writes romance and writes amazing romance and romance with people of color in it. And I have currently have the Royal Holiday with me because I'm one of those people when I read a book, I pass it on. So this is the only one of the ones I have with me physically right now. But I love every single one. Start from start and go all the way through. You start with the wedding date and the proposal, Royal Holiday. And there's a, another date one out right now that I can't remember the name of, but go find it. We'll include the link in the show notes. The reason, if you just listened to the episode, why I'm suggesting Jasmine Guillory is I think that we... Forget how important joy and happily ever afters are at a time when things are tumultuous. We often, rightfully so, want to read those hard texts, those nonfiction texts talking about the racial justice, talking about social justice, talking about activism. But we forget that joy is just as important to talk about. Jasmine Guillory wrote an amazing piece in Time, and we'll link to that as well on the bottom in the show notes, about the importance of reading Black Joy during the Black Lives Matters movement, the importance of reading about joy in general. And I suggest all of Jasmine's book because they are joyful. They are escapism in the best way possible. They don't, they aren't lighthearted. They deal with some serious issues here and there, but in general, you know you're going to end up with a happily ever after. You know that you're gonna escape into some fun world. Um, the Royal Holiday was actually really difficult for me to read because I just really wanted to run off to London and drink tea with the queen and be all fancy. And sometimes we just need that escapism. So right now, if things were tough, I highly suggest picking up any of Jasmine Guillory's books to help you find some joy in your life and help you to escape in the best way possible. I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. The links to all of them are in your show notes. And have a great reading. You just finished another lesson at Business School for Writers. Feels pretty great, right? Being one step closer to a thriving writing career? 
I am so excited to see how you put to use the tips you learned today. So please share what you gained from this episode in the Writer Squad Facebook group. You can find your squad at facebook.com slash groups slash writer squad. Want even more support making your writing dreams come true? Go to businessschoolforwriters.com where not only can you find show notes and links from today's episode, but you'll also be able to explore courses, coaching, and free resources we've gathered together to help you along your path to creating a thriving writing career. Thanks again for listening to the Business School for Writers podcast. I'll see you in the next lesson. Business School for Writers is hosted and produced by Lauren Marie Fleming with editing and support from Samantha Olivares. All rights reserved by Las Maestras LLC. Our music is De Lejos by Ila Bamba. Check them out on Spotify. Big thanks to the team at Terrorbird and to Kristen Hozak. And of course, big thanks to you, the listener. Now put down this podcast already and go write. I'll see you next episode.